I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. Lucinda Williams is one of the most celebrated singer-songwriters of her generation. Her first two albums, Ramblin' on My Mind and Happy Woman Blues, recorded in 1979 and 1980, respectively, received critical acclaim. Her 1988 self-titled album opened the doors to a career that has seen her mix of rock, blues, punk and country Americana establish her own unique lane in the music business, a business that for many years just didn't know where to put her. Her 1998 album, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, earned her a Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Folk Album. The follow-up, Essence, released in 2001, hit the Billboard 200, peaking at number 28 and three Grammy nominations. And she won the award for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance for the single Get Right With God. Other albums include Blessed, The Ghost of Highway 20, Good Souls, Better Angels, and at the time of our conversation, she was readying the release of her 16th studio album, Stories from a Rock and Roll Heart. Lucinda's memoir, Don't Tell Anybody the Secrets I Told You, released just about a month ago at the time of this conversation, has gotten rave reviews across the board. Here's just one of them from Publishers Weekly. Raw and honest, this must-read account soars on the back of Williams' hard-won wisdom about making art and overcoming struggle. Lucinda, great to see and speak with you. Thank you. It's great to see you too. Before we jump into the book and my music questions, you had a stroke in 2020, and I know you've had to learn how to walk again, and you're still not able to play guitar just yet on stage, but how are you? How have you adapted? Well, I'm doing great. I feel good today, you know, one day at a time. Recovery is not easy. You have to be very patient. But I've had, I've done some, a lot of rehab, physical therapy and all of that, and I got into that very quickly after after I had my stroke. So I think that made a big difference. And I've got a good team of people around me, a good support group. So I feel pretty positive about it. Now, this happened in the first COVID year as well. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that same year. We had, well, first there was a tornado that blew through Nashville and took off part of our the roof off the front porch. Then we had the pandemic and then I had my stroke. So it's been a an uphill battle. I'm guessing you had a little bit of time on your hands, obviously. Yeah, I had some time on my hands. Yeah, between the pandemic and the stroke, I had a good bit of time on my hands. When did you first think about writing a book? Well, people have been, for several years, People had been mentioning it and asking me about it. And I think maybe it's because so many of my songs have stories. The songs themselves have stories with them that I would tell when I, whenever I would perform. I would explain the songs and tell the stories behind the songs. And, um, and then I was offered a book deal for a publishing company, and it just kind of all fell together. And, you know, it kind of makes sense because the stories in the book really are just continuations of the stories behind the songs that just go, they just go into depth more, a little bit more. You wrote it by hand. Yeah, I did. Tell us a little um, bit more about, t- tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I never learned how to type, which was, has been a big, big regret of mine, you know, so... 
I just realized at one point, I'm going to have to write this by hand. I don't know what else to do. I did try recording some interviews, you know, me talking about memories and all of that, and had it transcribed and then, you know, got the transcription back. But I didn't like the transcription. I didn't like the way it read. And I just realized the only way I'm going to have it read the right the way I want it to is if I literally write it myself. So, you know, I just do a little bit here, a little bit there, just paragraphs of things and send them in to the where the copy editor would go to work. You know, <laughs> what I discovered was in doing all of this that I like editing. Probably my one of my biggest challenges with with the writing this book was trying to keep myself from wanting to edit all the time. You know, like I couldn't go back. If I went back and read over something, I would have to immediately edit the whole thing. And, you know, you can't keep doing that because you'll never finish. So, and I mean, I would read over the stuff that the copy editor had already edited, you know, that I, I would want to edit the copy editor stuff, <laughs> you know, so. Are you a control freak by any chance? <laughs> uh, I guess a little bit, yeah. You learn things about yourself when you're you're in those situations, I guess. Well, you had a lot going on. Obviously, you were you were in in recovery from your stroke. You're starting to write a book. The world is kind of shut down at the beginning of that as well. I would imagine you had a an opportunity to to really take a, a look at, at your life, and you start at the beginning. You start with your childhood. Yeah, I wanted to do that because. So much of my childhood and how I was raised and, and everything I felt really informed so many of my songs. You know, I I remember talking to someone one time, I mentioned this in the book actually, before I started writing the book. And he was an older, elderly man I ran into at a bar. I think it was in New York City or maybe it was Chicago, I don't know. But I told him I was getting ready to do this book, and he said, now, he was kind of one of these old, you know, old geezers, you know, from, I don't know who he was or what he'd done, but he seemed to know what he was talking about, you know, so he said something like, you don't need to write about your childhood, you know, nobody wants to read about that, just write about the music world, just write about your career, nobody wants to know anything about your childhood, don't waste your time doing that, but I didn't listen to him, I decided to because a lot of people were wondering about my childhood. I had a woman ask me one time after I played a set at the Dakota in Minneapolis. And she came up to me and said, asked me, did you have a troubled childhood? After she'd heard some of my songs and I just nodded my head, yes. And scurried backstage real quickly before she wanted to get into a long conversation. But, you know, I get those kind of questions all the time. And, you know, part of my childhood was talking about that was my father and how involved he was in my life and how close we were. And my mother was a musician. And, you know, they gave me those genes. My music genes came from my mother, my writing genes from my father. That was a pretty important thing to include. You moved around a lot as a kid, I know. And, um, yeah. You and I have spoken about this uh, in another interview a, a few years ago, but your your dad's employment really kept you guys on the move, right? I mean, he was he was a poet. 
but he was also a literary professor. Yes, he taught. He was always teaching, taught at different colleges, you know, all over the country. So he would teach for a year or two at one and then, you know, be transferred to a different school a year or two at each one until he eventually finally achieved tenure at the University of Arkansas. And then he was, that was really the first time he was able to kind of settle down in one place for any length of time. But I didn't really mind moving around all that much. I remember it being, I, I remember kind of liking it and the adventure of discovering a new place and, you know, being in a different house. And I think some people think, assume that it was kind of traumatic for me, but I didn't really look at it that way. I guess, you know, kids are pretty resilient. They they can adapt to things pretty, pretty easily. So I think that's how I was as a kid. I just adapted. I think as a, as a, as a kid, you adapt. But the stuff that you're experiencing as a kid obviously plays out through your life, right? Yeah, that's true, which is why I write songs, <laughs> you know. You know, one of the things I've always felt about your lyrics they're like little movies in my head. I mean, you, you paint yeah. you paint pictures with, with words. Does that come directly from your dad, do you think? It probably a lot of it does. It's hard to say, you know, what comes from what. But, I mean, if you read his poetry, you can definitely see a connection between his poems and my songs. He was always very good at very descriptive I remember one time I was talking to him about a song I was working on, and I was describing a, a photograph of a woman from a long time ago wearing a, a blue dress. And I told my father about this verse, and he said, he suggested, he said, why don't you try saying sad blue dress instead of just blue dress? You know, and it just completely, utterly changes the dynamic of the whole thing with the word sad there. You know, it's brilliant. So, yeah, I definitely learned that from him, I would say. I was reading something uh, a, a little while ago and actually listening to something. You did a, a thing on NPR, I think, as well. And you were talking about the song Car Wheels on a Gravel Road and how your dad heard that song and then came and talked to you about it afterwards, realizing that it was about your childhood. Yeah. And I hadn't consciously realized it while I was writing it. That was an amazing moment. Yeah. He came up and said, told me he was sorry after he, the first time he saw me perform, heard me perform it at the Bluebird in Nashville when we were and he came, I went backstage and he came up and said, I'm sorry, honey. And I said, Dad, what do you mean? And he said, well, you, you're the girl in the backseat in that new song you wrote, Little Bit of Dirt Mixed with Tears, you know. And I was just gobsmacked. <laughs> wow. I hadn't even realized. I thought I was writing in the third person. I was writing in the first person about myself and hadn't consciously realized it that's weird when that happens when you sat down and started pulling the the notes together and recording and then ultimately writing your book 
Yeah. Did you approach that in the same way that you approach writing a song? No, it was just a whole different animal. I was really kind of terrified at the beginning, to tell you the truth. I didn't know how to start. I didn't know. I didn't have any kind of guideline to go by. You know, the way I do when I write songs, I know what to do. You know, I'm experienced. But when it came to writing a book, I was just, how does this work? How do I get started? And all of that. It just seemed really um, kind of overwhelming at first. But then once I got going, I started falling into a rhythm with it. One of the other things that you write about is the, the music business. I mentioned in the intro, a business that has not really still figured out what to do with you, but you've nonetheless plowed along. I mean, you've had this amazing career despite yeah. uh, all of that stuff. And and I know you 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 write about it, but you've had your uh, you've had your share of uh, record label executives telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Yeah, the, well, you know, the famous quote, of course, is they said, you know, my music fell in the cracks between country and rock, and you know, I just kind of I didn't really ignore it, but I just kind of said, well, okay, whatever. I mean, it is what it is, you know. But they have to market you. I kept saying, you know, I, kept, I always tell people this. It's called the music business. You know, it's a business. That's what you have to remind, you keep reminding yourself of. So, you know, you're a product and they have to market you. Well, that sounds kind of coarse and sad to say, but that the bottom line is that's what it is. I mean, that was my whole battle when I was trying to get a record deal was, they didn't know how to market me. And at first, I didn't understand why that was such a big deal. But then I realized that's basically their whole intent is to, you know, figure out what it's called because it affects everything they do. You know, they've got it from radio play to the record stores. They have to figure out what, like the record stores have to know where to put your record. Does it go in folk? Does it go in country or rock or pop? You know, so people can find it when they go to the record stores. It affects the radio stations. What kind of music do they play? Are they going to play it more if it's one style or the other? You know, all those things are all connected. So it's really, that's probably the most important part for the record company is to figure out where you fit. Because otherwise, they don't know how to proceed. Have you ever tried to write with that in mind? No, but that's a good question. I've never really had a reason or an opportunity to, you know. I mean, it would be interesting if, if I'd been asked to try to write, you mean like a hit song? No, I mean, I don't, I don't know the rules for that, you know. It's an interesting concept, I mean... I always think about that and wonder, you know, if when, when I hear a hit song, you know, did someone, did they know it was going to be a hit or was it just an accident, a happy accident? Or do you apply the same rules to writing it that you do to other songs? Probably not. But I mean, there are songwriters who've written just nothing but hit songs. And it's amazing to me, like Burt Bacharach. All that stuff that Dionne Warwick recorded, I love all those songs. 
love them. I love those songs we did. I love great pop songs. You know, I guess, I mean, I know a good melody is important. And I guess they need to be a little up tempo, probably not too slow. Although there have been some slow hit songs. But that question opens up a whole slew of thoughts running through my head. Well, let me just say, first of all, you've written some amazing songs that are upbeat enough to be hits for sure and you you've had hits thank you well one of them maybe that passionate kisses thanks for the most part to mary Chapin carpenter who covered it you know for recording it and she released it as a single off her album and the funny the story behind that is i don't know if i told you this before but it was on her this one particular album that she put out, I think it was Come On, Come On. And she told her record label that she wanted Passion Kisses to be the, the first single off the album. Well, they said no, because it wasn't country enough. Because here we go again, she was being marketed as a country artist. So that meant everything she did had to fit in with the whole country market thing. So they said, you know, this isn't gonna work, it's not country enough, and we don't think that's a good choice for the first single. And Chapin said, well, I don't agree with you. I want it to be the first single. Cause she had been playing it live for her audiences and they loved it. And so the her label conceded finally, and they said, well, okay. And then this is the best part. Then it, she releases it, it comes out, it wins a Grammy for country song of the year. <laughs> so there you go. How has your songwriting changed through the years and has it been impacted by your stroke? I think I've just, as I've gotten older and wiser and everything, I've made me a little more confident as a writer, as a songwriter, you know, and I used to worry a lot about, you know, if this was good enough and this was good enough and all of that, are people going to like it and I don't do that quite as much now. The last time we spoke was in 2016, I think, and it was before the Me Too movement. It was before a reckoning that appears to have happened in the entertainment business, or at least begun to happen. And I remember at the time you were telling me some some horror stories about coming up as a, as, as a female in, in, in the business. One in particular, I remember, and you, you don't have to repeat it unless you feel like it. Um, although now we've put it out there, people are going to be like, what was that? <laughs> uh, yeah. one, in, one in particular was um, uh, Ted Nugent, who was a complete asshole to you. This was when I was living in Houston. And back then when I was living in Houston, I got pretty involved with KPFT which was the Pacifica station there. And because they were always having these fundraising parties and they would ask me to come over and play for those and everything. And Ted Nugent was on K KPFT being interviewed. Mm. And this was the day, the next day after I opened up for him. And they asked him, they said, well, what do you think about the girl who opened up for you and he said something like oh you know another pussy with a guitar something like that that was a world that you lived in you had to yeah get out and 
play your music in that very sexist climate has yeah has it, has it has it changed do you think yeah i think it's changed in terms of those kinds of comics you know but i mean the sexism is everywhere all the time every day all day you know i think just in terms of the climate of not saying something like that because it's so utterly rude and disgusting that's changed i think you know just in terms of i like to think that people are treating each other with a little bit more respect than they used to. Let's jump into these music questions. I'm going to start off with your first musical memory. Okay. Well, there was a lot of it around me. I was born at 53 and started playing guitar in 1965, which was the during the height of the folk music boom. So I got really, really interested and into all the folk music singer-songwriters from that era, particularly Bob Dylan. He was the one who had most of my attention. But there were other ones, other great ones, Leonard Cohen, Judy Collins, Joan Baez, Buffy St. Marie, Gordon Lightfoot, Phil Oaks. Is this music that was around the house? Yeah, some of it was around the house, definitely, yeah. My mother and father were both music lovers, and, you know, so there wasn't actually that big of a generation gap as far as music went between my parents and me. Like, I mean, my mother, I remember, bought one of Larry Coyne's albums, and my dad was listening to mostly country or blues and jazz. That's what he was into mostly. Hank Williams or... Coltrane and Chet Baker, Bessie Smith. I remember their Columbia Records had put out this big double album with a collection of Bessie Smith's music, and he had gone and bought that. He went to the record store fairly often and would come back. I think I remember him bringing back some Light and Hopkins records and listening to those. And so I was getting a lot of this just kind of floating through the house. You know, a lot of the artists that you mention were really sort of outside artists as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I remember, oh, this is kind of a funny story. My dad brought home a copy of the Fugs album, Boobs A Lot. When I was, I guess I was about 14 or something. We were living in New Orleans and he brought that album home. And, you know, of course, I listened to everything, whatever came in the house, I put it on and listened to it. As, as you as you were saying, though, a, a lot of the music that was around the house was coming from poets or. An, right. An, yeah. Yeah. But, and they were kind of to me, they had this kind of beat, like beatnik thing. And, you know, the more I look back on and remember my dad and how he was and everything back then, I realized more and more how he was, how much he was like that, you know, that he was, he really was like a beatnik, you know, not a hippie, but a beatnik. I'm really been understanding that in writing this book has made me understand the important difference between the two. He was very progressive in his thinking and his politics, and he loved great jazz and great blues and 
was always inviting some younger writers over to the house to stay. They would have meals with us and stay overnight sometimes. And, and I got so much of that from him, helping other people and helping other artists. You talked about your dad going to the record store. What what about you? What was the first music you bought? My big, greatest memory probably of the album that just, you know, blew my mind was when a student of my dad's had come over to the house. This was one of the advantages I had because his writing students were somewhat older than I was. You know, they were college age, so they would have been like in their 20s or early 30s, maybe. And so this, they were listening to stuff that I may not have been exposed to otherwise, you know, that I would get turned on to and introduced to. So this student of my dad's came over to the house one day and he walked in the door waving this album around. Remember how excited people would get when a certain artist, when they had a new album out, it was like an event. Yeah. You know, so that's what this was like, kind of. He walks in the door and he's got Bob Dylan's new album, Highway 61 Revisited. And he said, you got to listen to this. You got to listen to this. And my dad was kind of busy with something and they were supposed to have a meeting of some kind. So eventually he went in another room to talk to my dad. I picked up the album and looked at it. And of course, I got the, the cover, that iconic photograph of Bob Dylan with his wavy hair and that, that shirt on and the motorcycle and just the whole thing just did something to me when I saw that photograph. And I put it on the stereo system, which is probably similar to what everybody had back then, you know, not like people have now with these state-of-the-art speakers and all of that. You know, it's one of those early 60s. Like a piece of furniture. Yes, like a piece of furniture. You yeah. lift up the top and there's this, yeah. the turntable, you know. Yeah. So I put it on and turned it on. And my that mind was, was, that was it. My was mind it. was blown. Yeah. I didn't know what he was singing about in most of the songs, but I didn't care. Because I knew, even though I was only 12 years old, I recognized that he had taken the literary world and put it together with the with the traditional folk music world. So it made perfect sense to me sonically. But you know, I didn't understand it's all right, mom only bleeding and all of that. But I was smitten. That was it. Do you remember the first concert you went to? Oh God, I don't know if I can remember the first one, but First one without adult supervision. I went to a lot of several Peter, Paul, and Mary concerts. Uh, I just absolutely loved their music. I loved the songs and Mary Travers. Again, she had that look, you know, that sort of beat, early 60s beat look, you know, with her long, straight, blonde hair. And she would brush her hair on the stage sometimes. I went to see him play once and She's standing there, this you know, with these little kitten heels on, and a skirt and blouse, and she's got her long blonde hair. She's brushing her hair, you know, and it was just some the way she dressed partly. And John Baez, I adored her, you know, with her long hair, her bare feet, you know, and jeans, and 
I just loved all of that whole world. I, I wanted to be in that. I wanted to hang out with them, go to Bridge Village and hang out with all the folk singers, you know. What do you listen to when you want to dance? James Brown. I would either put James Brown on or maybe Prince. What do you listen to if you're feeling sad? Well, it depends if I want to, you know, sink into the sadness or get out of it. Give me both. Okay. Maybe Chet Baker or John Coltrane. If you want to dive into it? Yeah, if I want to dive into it. I love the album, the John Coltrane Ballads album. Just love that album. It's one of my top, my Desert Island albums. And the other one would be Chet Baker's, it's called Baker's Holiday, where he sings songs that were covered by Billie Holiday. So I loved his voice. And the, the other thing I love when I want to feel happy is Antonio Carlos Jobim, Jao Gilberto, and Astro Gilberto. I love that stuff. I could listen to it all day and night, every day. I love that record that um, Joe Beam did with Sinatra. Yeah, me too. Oh, I have that one. I love that album. I, just, I don't know what it is about that music. It just makes me feel just soothing, you know. So that'll take you out of it if you're feeling sad. That's something that can lift you out? I think so. I don't know. If I'm feeling sad, it's kind of hard to get me out of it. <laughs> Maybe a bottle of red wine and a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> you you mentioned that would be your Desert Island song and and that brings me to the next question which is a horrible question but it's always interesting to see what people answer if you could only hear one song for the rest of your life what would you pick okay i'm just i'm not going to get all obsessed about it because i don't want to be able to make a decision i'll just think of one among others that i would pick um one of my favorite songs of all time is the shadow of your smile the, there's something about the lyrics and the melody of that song. I mean, several people have covered it, so I don't, I don't, can't remember exactly who, which version, whose version. But I'm look, I'm looking it up right now. I'll obviously edit this piece <laughs> or not. Shadow of Your well, Smile, also known as the love theme from the Sandpiper. Yes. It was written by uh, Johnny Mandel with lyrics by um, Paul Francis Webster. Yeah. And introduced introduced the, the movie, the 1965 movie called The Sandpiper. Uh, it was a minor hit for Tony Bennett. Okay. And it might be on that Frank Sinatra, Antonio Carlos Jobim album. There is an Astrid Gilberto version of it. Okay, right. Yeah, and there's a Sinatra, there's a Sinatra with Count Basie version of it, but uh, Ella Fitzgerald did it. I mean, wow. Yeah, there's a lot of covers. Stevie Wonder. It's a great song. Marvin Gaye. It is a fantastic song. So, so yeah. yeah. So if it was only one, that that would that would help you while away the hours on your desert island. <laughs> yeah, might make me want to jump in the ocean and swim away. Yeah, well, I don't know if I could swim away, but I might not care. Do you, do you have a favorite music video? I never was a big fan, huge fan of music videos. But I think Nirvana had a couple that were good. And I, I mean, I don't remember, you know, which song or anything, but 
And then um, No Doubt, I remember, with Gwen Stefani. They had this really cool one that I saw once where they were in a boat. I just remember they were, it was, they were in a boat on the water and it was kind of just real rustic looking. I was asked to do a video one time and and I mentioned this Nirvana video and I said, I want to do one like that, you know, that's kind of dark and black and white and rustic looking. They said, well, you can't do that. You're, it's not going to work for you. That was Nirvana. And I said, well, why do they get to do it and I can't do it? And they said, because of the kind of music they do and everything. I mean, it was ridiculous to talk to me about doing a video because if I was going to do one, I want to do one in that style. And, you know, I just always got uh, pushback about that. You know, I think I was on Rough Trade or Lost Highways, one of those labels. They went to MTV and asked them, they said, this is what they do. I didn't know they did this. They went to MTV and they say, if we do a video on Lucinda Williams for one of her songs, what are the chances you play it? You know, because the label doesn't want to spend all this money if it's not, they're not going to make some of their money back. So... And then MTV, one of the execs at MTV said, you know, we're probably not a good chance it's going to get much play, you know, so, so much for that. The style I like of filmmaking is the DJ Penny Baker Don't Look Back film on Bob Dylan. That I thought was brilliant. DJ Penny Baker. Yeah, I love that style. That sort of cinema verite style. Yeah. Exactly. I'd love to see a video of, of you done in that style. There's still time. Yeah, there's still time. I just have to find a director who gets me. Do you have a recent musical discovery? It doesn't have to be necessarily a new artist, but somebody that's new to you that yeah. you'd like to share share with our listeners. Yeah. Um, there's a young woman named Mia Doy Todd. He's, I, I think it's just brilliant. Yeah. And a friend of mine introduced me to her music. I think the first album I had at first was called Golden State. And I just listened to it over and over and over and over again. And I actually wrote a song that dedicated to her called Rarity. Because one time I was in a record store and I saw one of her albums and it was on a Big, little bit bigger label than she'd been on. And so I figured, immediately thought, okay, you know, she went with this label because they, you know, maybe they could do more for her or something. And maybe she got dropped or something happened. I just had the feeling that, you know, she'd been through some problems with record companies probably because her music is oh, way too right. original and unique, you know. I mean, her stuff is so special, you know, just amazing lyricist. And her approach is, reminds me a little bit of Suzanne Vega's stuff, mm. you know, when she first started, you know, just very, like, not a lot of over-elaboration or anything like that, you know, very straight ahead, clean, very clean, well-written songs, you know, this very um, understated 
vocal, light vocal, like the way Susanna Vegas sings, kind of, you know, like without a lot of vibrato or anything like that. Is there a band or an artist that you personally love, but you feel that perhaps they never quite got the break that they deserved? Well, there's a guy out of New York right now who I just recently discovered named Steve Gunn, G-U-N-N, and I just love his stuff. I don't know how to describe it really, but just I love the sound of his what he's doing in his records. I love the production on him. Really interesting guitar player, guitarist, and um, kind of understated, really cool vocals and beautiful melodies. Some of his stuff is kind of dreamy, atmospheric sounding. Do you have a, a musical guilty pleasure? No, I know what you mean, but I don't feel guilty about it. <laughs> the Carpenters. I love them. I love the Carpenters. I love Karen Carpenter's voice. She's amazing. Her voice is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And some of the other stuff I mentioned before that I loved it, pop songs. And I love some of that stuff like uh, Batula Clark did, that song Downtown. and Don't Sleep in the Subway. Yes. Yeah, I love that stuff. And I mentioned before the Dionne Warwick stuff, Burt Bacharach songs. It makes me feel happy listening to those songs. And just There's something kind of, like you were saying, the world in between the hip, beatniks and the hippies, like everything was good, everything was sunshine and roses, and we're all happy and all of that. That's what it brings to mind, kind of, when I listen to that stuff. So we have one last question. Okay. And that is, how are you feeling right now? I feel great. You know, physically, I feel good. A little, a little worn down, maybe a little worn out a little bit. I've been doing a lot of interviews <laughs> and, you know, that can be kind of exhausting, but there, I'm very fortunate because I get to be interviewed by really good journalists, people like you you know, who ask intelligent questions. I hope so. <laughs> you know, when I very first started, I was I had to talk to a lot of beginning journalists and beginning radio people, like college-age kids who were just getting started. And they would ask me things like, what comes first, the lyrics or the music? Uh -huh. You know, and that kind of thing. Or do you think having a poet for a father influenced you or inspired you to any degree you know these kind of yes and no questions like well what do you think yes of course he inspired me right I mean, you know but for the most part i've been lucky because i've had good people to talk to so it makes a difference well me too on the on the other end of that equation as you can imagine i i talk to a, a lot of people and and have done through the years radio shows tv shows podcasts i've been really lucky to get to speak to some amazing people including yourself i well thank you i always tell whoever i'm talking to that you know the best kind of interviews i think are the ones that are more like conversations you know, it doesn't feel like an interview so much as 
a friendly conversation. I, I appreciate your support and the station support and everything. Oh, I love playing your music on the radio. You got your new song on my show right now. Played it today or yesterday, I think. Is that the is that New York comeback? Yeah, the one with Springsteen. So seeing as we're yeah. talking about it, I know we yeah. already said goodbye, but tell tell me how that song came together. Well, you know, one difference with this album, one big difference is that I've been collaborating a little with other people, which I hadn't really been into doing before. And one of them is my husband and manager, Tom Overby. Also, Jesse Mallon, rock artist based in New York City. And Tom and I had co-produced Jesse's album, last album, and I had helped Jesse with some of his songs for his record. So it made sense to have him drop in and insert some rock and roll influence into some of the songs. So Jesse would fly in from New York to Nashville, which is a short, convenient flight. And he would come into town and hang out for a few days and we'd sit around the kitchen table and he might have an idea that he would bring in or, or Tom had some ideas. I never thought I would be co-writing with my husband, but it was just one of those organic things that just kind of came about. He ended up with some good ideas and I think we came out with, came up with some good songs, like Stolen Moments off the album. It's, that was something that Tom brought to the table. So New York Comeback was... Um, I think Tom's idea initially and Jesse helped flesh it out. And I worked on the melody a lot. And we were sitting there, Tom, who's been a Springsteen fan for years and years and years, said, wouldn't it be great if we could get Bruce on this song? And Jesse, who knows everybody in New York, said, I think I can get a hold of Bruce for you. And sure enough, he went back to New York and tracked down some of the some of Bruce's people and they found Bruce and he was asked if he wanted to do it. He said, yes. Well, he and his wife, Patty also, Patty Schialfa. So we sent them the tracks. They went into a studio where they live and put some vocals down. We didn't tell them what to do. We just let them do whatever they, you know, spontaneously wanted to do. And, you know, that was it. That was how we got Bruce. And, what I always tell, remind people is that Jesse Mallon is known as the unofficial mayor of the Lower East Side. <laughs> you know, he knows everybody and he's always always has these great projects that he's putting together and doing these different shows. And he's got different venues in New York that he's involved in. And so I have to thank him for getting Bruce for us. It's it's a great song. I know there's a couple of tracks already Thanks. out. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're recording this at the beginning of June 2023, and the album comes out towards the end of the month. Again, thank you, Lucinda, for uh, taking the time, hanging out, telling some stories, and um, continued recovery. Thank you. And I'm going to get back to the guitar because, look, I had to learn how to walk all over again. You know, so I had to work on my legs and my feet. So now I just have to work on my hands and arms. Guitar is next. Thank you. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 